Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Should we do the outro? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, August 12th, 2022, we're talking about the federal government program that provides the biggest source of affordable housing funding in the state of California. So you must mean tax credits or maybe the infrastructure bill? No, Liam. Wrong on both accounts. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm talking about Section 8 vouchers, also known as Housing Choice Vouchers. This is a federal program that provides low-income families with subsidies to bridge the gap between what they can afford on their incomes and the cost of renting an apartment. Ah, yes. Okay. Now I understand. So our conversation will focus on what's happened during the pandemic. Right. Federal housing officials released a special batch of these vouchers last spring for those who are homeless or at risk of becoming so, and people fleeing domestic violence during the pandemic. My colleague Jeannie Quang and I wrote about these recently for CalMatters and found some successes, but also many failures in getting people sustainably housed despite many new incentives for landlords to say yes. Yeah, and when you're saying incentives, you're talking about some real money here. That's right. Some landlords and their property managers received as much as a $7,000 bonus simply for agreeing to rent to a tenant with a voucher. So joining us to discuss these vouchers and that money, we have, as always, the perfect guest, don't we, Manuela? Indeed. We'll be joined by Jack Leahy, the Director of Homeless Services at the Community Action Partnership of San Luis Obispo County. Give me the acronym. <laughs> Capslow. <laughs> yes. Okay. Nice. Jack runs a homeless shelter called Forty Prado, which has been helping people get housed with these vouchers and also has ample experience with homeless services in L.A. But first... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the craziest housing story of the past couple weeks. This one is wacky indeed, Liam. Why don't you set the scene? Okay, so you're sitting in your car in traffic on the Bay Bridge coming into San Francisco. Okay. And then all of a sudden, you turn to your left and see a tough shed-sized pastel Barbie dream house broken down in the lane next to you. Mm. Yeah, so that was the reaction on Twitter. User Chris and Carlo wrote, quote, the Zillow listing on this is a cool 1.7 million, great views, easy access to freeways, yes, but small yard and a bit noisy. Easy access to freeways, indeed. So what were they? Yeah, so even though the photos of the homes on wheels look very much like homes, sadly were not, they were actually two portable toilets modeled after the posh Victorian houses in San Francisco known as the Painted Ladies. I'd make a full house joke here, but I'll leave that to you, Liam, since that's more from your generation. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, zing. Thank you. So anyway, these loos were rolled out in 2017 in response to the growing homelessness crisis so that people had a place to go to the bathroom. The particular toilets KCBS reported were out of service and being transported to a storage area when the suspension on the trailer failed, thus stranding the houses slash bathrooms on the bridge. That's amazing. 
<laughs> this one friend of mine once said that he is a NIMBY for this building that was being built on his street because the construction noises wouldn't let him sleep. And if I was sitting in that traffic, likely needing to use the bathroom, I would have thought the exact same thing. But I don't understand because this is a literally a bathroom <laughs> that would have been in the middle of the road. Seems like that's actually your dream. I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. This wasn't functioning. It was broken down. Ah, so I guess uh -huh. if it was and it was put there on purpose, I might be a Yimby for it, Liam. I see. I see. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. So with that, let's talk about vouchers, which I know many listeners are familiar with, but others are not. We often talk on this show about how difficult and expensive it is to build housing, specifically government-subsidized affordable housing, and how little there is of it. So... What if I told you that the government could instead provide people with vouchers that would cover most of their rent in an apartment of their choosing on the private market? Sounds pretty promising. That's basically how Housing Choice Vouchers, or Section 8, vouchers are supposed to work. And to give some sense of scale, these vouchers help pay rent for more than 300,000 households in California this year, totaling $1.9 billion in assistance. They allow for people earning a certain percentage below the median income in a given area to dedicate 30% of their income toward rent, with the government picking up the rest of the tab. Okay, yeah, so that's a pretty hefty number of families who are being helped here, but we definitely know the need in California is far, far greater than that, right? Absolutely. And in fact, there aren't enough vouchers to go around for the vast majority of people who qualify for one. Even if you're lucky enough to get a voucher, odds are you won't find a landlord who's willing to take it, especially in a hot housing market. Mm-hmm, right. And so we actually went pretty deep into all these issues with former state senator and now LA County Supervisor Holly Mitchell in the pre-Manuela times uh, on this uh, podcast. Holly did author a bill, though, that went into effect at the start of 2020 that prohibited landlords from saying no to prospective tenants solely because they're voucher holders. This was sort of seen as a way to make the no Section 8 lines you'd see in rental listings illegal. So what has been a the effect of that law? Honestly, not much. The agency in charge of enforcing the law doesn't dedicate full-time staff to the effort and instead depends on complaints from tenants. It received only 82 statewide in 2020 and sent out 20 letters reprimanding landlords last year and another 37 this year. But those no Section 8 signs keep appearing either explicitly or implicitly in apartment listings, and landlords are still allowed to request certain credit scores and rental histories that many people with these vouchers just don't have. So you said that this new pandemic voucher program is different. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so first, the audience is narrower than the low-income bracket vouchers typically serve. They targeted people who are homeless on the brink of homelessness or victims of domestic violence. That's because of deep worries about greater housing insecurity during the pandemic. I see. But since everyone knows the problems with the voucher program, how did the federal government try to deal with that? Well, rules were more flexible. The federal government essentially only required income eligibility, the proof for which could come once the people were already housed, and that they weren't a registered sex offender. All other typical barriers, like about criminal records, went out the window. Okay. They also cover a more generous portion of rent. In San Luis Obispo, for example, the max federal support went from $1,575 for a one-bedroom apartment to $1,720. They also came with $3,500 each, not to cover rent per se, but to sweeten up landlords. Housing authorities 
the local entities that hand out the vouchers, could pool all the money together to provide things like heftier security deposits, help people pay application and deposit fees, and provide these landlord bonuses. Huh, interesting. So we referenced that at the top. It sounds like this is sort of a real innovation here with some real money behind it. Yeah, this is really unprecedented stuff. They're paying landlords thousands of dollars in some jurisdictions for the privilege of then accepting more money and guaranteed rent from the federal government. Now, we can get into some reasons landlords may not want to take that deal, but in some cases, we're talking about $4,000 for new landlords and $3,000 for new property managers to sign up. Wow. Okay. That is sounds definitely like quite a thing. So how's this program working? Did the money make any difference? Yeah, it's a mixed bag, Liam. Federal officials told CalMatters the program has gotten off the ground at record speed. So far, about a third of California's 17,000 new vouchers have turned into leases in the past year. Some communities have had a near 100% lease up rate, like slow, which they attribute to those generous landlord incentives I just described, and intensive case management, which was also a requirement of the program. Okay, well, that sounds like a good part of the mixed bag. I guess there's a non-good part. As always, LA, on the other hand, which also gave out generous landlord incentives, had turned only 6% of their vouchers into leases at the time of our story. Ah, uh, yes, the, the mix in our bags it doesn't sound good at all. Mm, it's not. Both of these places have really low vacancy rates and very high rents. But as Jeannie and I saw in our reporting, it usually comes down to sheer numbers. LA got more than 3,000 vouchers, which they had to compete on the street with thousands of regular Section 8 vouchers, while cities like SLO got under 200. And as I mentioned, getting landlords on board is key. So dealing with a much smaller and maybe more responsive housing agency helped. Whereas LA landlords told us they don't want to touch vouchers or the red tape that comes with them. So what do you mean by that? We talked to Dan Yukelson, who runs the Apartment Association of Greater Los Angeles, the big landlord group there. And he said, quote, there's just not enough money to put on the table for people to jump for it. If I had a vacant unit and had 20 people show up, there's a bunch of people begging to rent my apartment. Why deal with all the administrative burdens? So something else I noticed, you know, my colleague Connor Sheets, the LA Times, did some reporting on this issue as well. And he wrote a lot about how bureaucratic problems are playing a role here in LA. You know, he spoke with multiple homeless residents who said they had connected with the city housing authority, applied for a voucher, but then were never followed up with. And so it's immensely frustrating, obviously, to hear in a region with more than 60,000 homeless people, that highest homeless population in the state, that these connections weren't being made or followed through on. I couldn't imagine the devastation of months of radio silence following the joy of getting so close to housing, which is the experience he describes in this story. So what happens now? Is there a deadline for the end of this voucher program? The vouchers expire in fall of 2023. So that's for them to get leased up. They're still going to cover rent for years for people. But HUD said that they had no interest in revoking a voucher for someone who was actively searching for a place. So maybe hopefully they'll get used up over the next year. So I want to ask you, I mean, you wrote this story, Manuela, like what do you think this means in terms of how vouchers in general could work going forward and whether some of the proposed fixes in this program will actually make it easier for people to get roofs over their heads. Yeah, well, we're going to discuss this with Jack to get his perspective. But the way that I see it, everyone loves free money. <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> 
Um, but there really didn't seem to be a clear formula that if you give more money, you have better results. Even if there was a clear way to determine what the right amount was in a certain housing market. And there's always a cost to giving out money, like another voucher that could go to house someone. Now, spending money on the specific things that are so troubling to landlords, like staffing to speed up inspection times and processing, that makes more sense to me. The other spending item, which I think is worth exploring, is back-end security deposits. Those are touchier for advocates because they say that they further negative stereotypes about people with vouchers, but the stigma clearly persists for landlords. In Slow, the housing authority told me that landlords really want to have that security, yet very few people use it. So I wonder if more of that could help. Huh, that's pretty interesting. So let's keep going, but let's add Jack to the conversation too. So we're here with Jack Leahy, Homeless Services Director at Capslow. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we discussed some of the big picture differences in rules between regular and emergency vouchers at the top of this episode. Could you tell us what impact looser rules have on the ground? They allowed us to work with people who we normally could not work with in terms of vouchers and folks who weren't really traditionally seen as voucher eligible. So work with people looking for housing. Then. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's obvious when you went through the rule changes and the different processes that the EHV vouchers had. But the biggest one here in Slow County was really loosening the rules around criminal background, loosening the rules around rental history was allowed us to work with a lot of people that we knew would be ineligible. And one of the other components that was really helpful is a lot of our folks who are dual diagnosed, so who have substance use disorder and mental health disorder, have backgrounds either criminal or rental or even behavioral that have traditionally barred them from housing and not allowed them to work within our housing authority's rules. And these vouchers allowed them to finally get to a, a, not a mainstream, traditionally saying mainstream, but to a voucher. And so that was the biggest program impact that we could really start working with folks who I think nationally are really tough to get into housing and to sustain in housing. So these people could now get a voucher, but still had to face landlords who often do require these criminal background checks. So I'm curious how that worked. I think we followed the same strategy that was outlined by Haslow is we really just tried to go by sheer numbers of applications. Uh, how's low is the... Yeah, sorry, that's the local PHA in Slow County. Okay. And they outlined a strategy to essentially saturate the market with applications and with vouchers. And they had an incentive program. So we followed that strategy, essentially applied to a lot of places that said no Section 8 allowed or places that traditionally didn't say yes to us in hopes that we would get a new landlord or a new property manager who would call us back. I think that that strategy worked. We got more people housed in that time period on vouchers than we've had in the past year. <laughs> but it was something where we essentially had to accept that there would be that discrimination continuing and talking with staff about people who had been denied because it was a voucher and we knew about it, but we couldn't necessarily prove it. But it was pretty obvious. Old supervisor used to always say, like, it's a game of battleship. Like, you have to 
pick your battles, especially when you're dealing with these kind of issues that you're encountering where you're trying to get as many people housed as possible, you have to not pick every fight possible. So that's kind of what we did. When it was really felt like the only reason you're saying no to this person is that they're a voucher holder and maybe they have spotty rental history, I would have conversations with landlords to convince them and to talk with them about the supportive services we offer. That rarely worked, but sometimes it did. Because I think what people are most concerned about is the horror stories that landlords tell each other. Oh, I had this one rental person who trashed my unit and don't ever rent to this blah, 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 blah. I mean, those are the true outliers. For every person that trashes a unit and that operates drug dealing out of a unit or something like that or has unaccompanied guests, there's 10 or 15 voucher holders who are quiet, pay their rent, don't really do much in terms of making a landlord upset and are integrated into the community. We just don't hear about them. And to be honest, landlords aren't the best advertisers for trying to get more voucher holders because of those horror stories. And we don't want to just go so hard and saying how much supportive services we offer because then we're kind of setting up the conversation to say these folks are not independent and they're not able to live on their own, which is not true. And we can't promise that there'll be a perfect tenant either, which freaks out landlords. Like, I can't promise that this person's not going to violate the lease, but I can promise that we'll be receptive to being communicative with you, the landlord. The beauty of these EHV vouchers is we didn't have to have that conversation just to get the voucher. We only had to have that conversation to get the unit. And usually it's two conversations, one convincing for the voucher and then convincing for the unit. So it made it a lot easier in that way too. So, you know, one thing that I was struck by reading about this in Manuela's coverage and also some of our coverage in the LA Times was the amount of money that you folks were giving to landlords on the front end, you know, essentially for the privilege of accepting sort of more money in terms of the vouchers later on, like these bonuses, you have four grand or three grand to landlords and property managers. Can you describe why that was necessary? I think it was necessary because of those to be asked, the pervasive stereotypes we have about folks who are homeless and folks who are voucher holders. And there isn't a lot of great counter narrative against that that doesn't come off as mm-hmm. pandering. It's hard because we can't disclose too much about these folks. So like in a small community, I can't go on and on about all the people who hold vouchers and how great they are without a person realizing, like, oh, that's Joe, my neighbor. And I think that As social service providers, just generally, we don't do a great job of really trying to lift up that success. And so the thing that wasn't happening here was a financial incentive beyond maybe, hey, I'll do a double rental deposit or something like that. So the fact that there was an inline incentive to acknowledge, hey, you're going to take a chance, even though I think in terms of actual sheer outcomes, it's not really a chance. It's a better outcome for a voucher holder than a normal tenant in terms of maintaining their tenancy and et cetera, et cetera. But take a chance on this person and we'll incentivize you. And I don't know that that has happened in a way here that has been systemic. Like We have never said, we're going to do this landlord incentive and this is how it's going to be structured and it's going to be larger than other ones we've done and it's not just one-offs, it's for everybody. And I think it was really impactful here versus Los Angeles because that's already baked into the system in LA. The landlord incentive piece is a part of normal operations. Double security deposit, signing incentives, 
per lease incentives, incentives for special populations. That's been pretty much standard operations down there. And here it's not really as much. And even offering to cover somebody's rent while that tenant might have left and broke the lease and then, oh, hey, landlord, I'll cover five days of your rent and get a new tenant in for you if you're willing. You know, that kind of stuff I think is normal down there. So landlords maybe expect it. And I think that expectation kind of underwhelms new initiatives that have an incentive on them. So then when we bring in this incentive program in a resource area that has a dearth of resources, then it really is impactful and it does work. And we don't have to do the hard work that I think we really need to do, dispelling these myths and really making people realize that housing discrimination is real and it happens all the time and it perpetuates homelessness. But that requires a buy-in from a landlord community. I think it requires that group and just business owners and everybody to have that look in the mirror of maybe it's partially on us that this is happening. And I don't think we could do that now here. I think we're getting there, but I think that that moment hasn't yet come. That's actually something that we were talking about is comparing slow and LA. And you actually came from Los Angeles where you worked for a number of years on homeless services. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how would you compare these two places, especially yeah, when it comes to getting these vouchers out and why it's been so much harder to do so in LA? I think just stepping back broadly, the two systems are obviously different. The population of the state of Michigan versus maybe a suburb of Rhode Island. But I think the biggest difference between the two systems is LA has a really hyper-developed, almost Byzantine homeless services system that has policies for everything. And it is structured on almost every step of the way. And Lhasa has five policies for one step and one HMI. Like, it's it's great in that sense. That's the Los Angeles Housing Services Agency. So the overall agency for the entire community, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really a strength of LA, that the delivery of homeless services in the homeless services system is extensive and really elegant in how they're tracking it and making sure that things are happening in a coordinated way. That's not the same case up here because the population's smaller, the nonprofits are smaller. So we more rely on having a phone call with that caseworker down the street versus looking them up in the HMIS database. I call a caseworker down the street and say, hey, have you seen Joe Red Hat today? I think I'm going to be able to get him housing next week. Let's work on a plan. So a lot of it's more like based on relationships and based on connections that people have at individual nonprofits. And I think there's pitfalls with that too. Like there's not sometimes systemic responses to the problems that we're facing in homeless services, which is also not great. But because we relied so heavily on these relationships and these looser connections and really in-depth knowing people, maybe not documented in HMIS, but really knowing the landlords and knowing these folks we were able to nimbly move where I don't think LA was able to do it as nimbly because we were able to identify and move on different people because we knew all the players and it was all a phone call away and it wasn't, well, let me contact, if I work at LA Family Housing and you work at Opix down in South Los Angeles, like if I have been there for a while, I know who to contact. But if I haven't, I have to kind of go through the system route, which sometimes isn't 
the most efficient. So I'm going to push on some of this. I mean, you know, you described LA's system as being both Byzantine and elegant, which, you know, is somewhat contradictory, right? And also, look, like largest homeless population in the state, in the county, you know, by far, 6% uptake in the use of these vouchers. So obviously the need is there, right? But even if they're trying to use other vouchers first, well, if that's not working, then I mean, clearly the need is there. And then, you know, on our story about this, you know, we spoke to a number of homeless residents who said they were first contact and then never were followed up on with the bureaucracy as well to be able to get. So like what really to kind of get to the heart of this from your perspective, given your experience in LA and where you are now and your experience, particularly with this program, like what is the one thing right? That's sort of missing here where getting the uptake in these, and it could be related to the relationship with the landlords. I don't know, right? But like, what is the one thing, if you were to point to the the top thing that was sort of missing here to be able to get the kind of successes, you know, your community had? It's having a relationship with landlords as a service provider to be able to get people in and not be denied based on their voucher status or their housing status or whatever. And then it's also having a good enough relationship with landlords on the front end where it's not just a resident calling a nonprofit saying, hey, I'm getting evicted and I don't really know what's going on. And then finally, when the service provider gets there, it's already too late. It's having relationships with landlords that allow us to be proactive on even on the landlord end of things. At my previous agency, LA Family Housing, we had a landlord relations group. We had essentially a team that was just dedicated towards landlord relations. They would work essentially as if landlords were their clients. And it allowed us to have a pool of housing to pull from because they would work with landlords. They would speak their language. They would say, hey, look, it's all about finances for you. Fine. This is how it'll work financially. Oh, it's all about having a heart. Great. This is how it'll work for you. And it allowed us to get people placed pretty quickly into housing. However, that was a team of four and that covered the whole San Fernando Valley. So that means there was, you know, over 10 nonprofits that were utilizing that kind of list. However, I would be remiss if I didn't say that at the same time, the enforcement on discrimination for people who are voucher holders has to happen. Without that approach of here's your incentive and then here's also a consequence for you continually saying no, then we can't really solve it. I think that there's this like hyper accountability on service providers and then all of a sudden there's like nothing for landlords who are actively discriminating against people or not wanting to work with homeless providers. So then we're just spinning our wheels, like looking incredibly inefficient. But in fact, we're banging our heads against a ball. For my story, I talked with Mitchell Friedrich. You worked with him to get a voucher. Can you tell us a little bit about his experience? Mitchell had been working with us on and off for um, some time. And he didn't qualify for other voucher types and was having trouble finding vouchers that worked for him. And he was actually struggling to have stability because he particularly, and I don't think anybody does, particularly enjoy staying at a homeless shelter. And if he wasn't consistently there, we couldn't really enroll him in case management the way our services were oriented then. So we couldn't assign a lot of effort towards helping him and his family. So let's hear a little bit more about Mitchell's own experience in his own words. Any property manager... Won't take you unless your credit score is 650 or higher, can't have a go guarantor, and you have to make three times the income. Well, then I wouldn't have a a voucher, but yet you take Section 8. And so they flat out would tell me, you're not going to qualify. And it it really was difficult. So 
Once you were able to help him use this new voucher, how did the experience change? I don't actually know the full details of that because Mitchell actually submitted this application on his own. And then he let us know about it after the fact. We had helped him with other applications, ones that we didn't have luck with. And his point, him talking about that really reminded me of a big frustration that he articulates beautifully. It is designed for somebody who experiences homelessness to not get a rental. Like, we have a whole credit repair program here. We have a program where we will hold money orders for people who are working jobs so they have enough income in the bank or at least on hand to get into a unit. It's impossible to do that. I mean, it, it is possible to do that, but it's you're essentially guaranteeing that it will be that much more difficult for somebody who had a very terrible experience in their life to recover. So, you know, something else that struck when reading the coverage of these new vouchers and the previous issues with the source of income discrimination or the anti-Section 8 discrimination laws, one of the advocates told Manuela that the housing authorities really shouldn't have to throw so much money at landlords if they're technically not allowed to discriminate against Section 8 voucher holders, that, you know, the federal government are essentially giving these carrots without using the available sticks that, you know, state and local governments have to tell landlords that they have to accept these folks. What do you make of that argument? I agree with that. I know that when we had the EHV vouchers, I was leaving LA right when they were starting to hit the system in terms of like planning. And we were, I remember being part of different meetings where HACLA, the PHA in LA, was discussing how much legal assistance they were going to be providing to people to prevent discrimination. And there was conversations about, we're going to really start enforcing on landlords because one of the strategies we had at LA Family Housing was if somebody was on rapid rehousing and they were not doing well, their income wasn't going up, maybe they were declining for whatever reason, we would apply a voucher to that unit because we knew that the landlord couldn't discriminate against them. They already had the lease and it would just be the only thing that has changed is this payment structure. So we started doing that really aggressively because we realized that was the way in which we could combat that because we didn't have the stick. And that was kind of our pseudo stick. I think everybody, to be honest, is really afraid to do it. I think we're afraid to enforce on landlords and enforce on property management companies or even PHAs that are discriminating against people because there is a fear that they will just say no. And we will just lose a resource and we will alienate people from this issue and we will alienate the group that we need to provide housing. And I think it's because we've been in this kind of powerless position for a really long time. The reason homeless services exist is because every other system failed and we're just trying to do our best to try to pick up the pieces. And so we are in this perpetual state of like, I'm sorry, let me help. Oh no, don't get mad at me. Like, Instead of really holding the other systems accountable and other folks accountable, we're just trying to be the most charitable, loving organizations possible, which we do need to be. That's legitimate. But I think to your points, that's probably the next step. We have a homeless service system in the country. We have allowed this problem to balloon to the point where this is its own system, and it has to be its own system. And now this system probably needs some teeth to enforce discrimination. I'll say even further, it would be... I think one thing that's really, really important that I believe currently is legal is discriminating against people who have housing gaps. So if I don't have rental history because I've been staying at a shelter for three years, I can legally be denied housing. And that has come up recently, even with voucher holders of, well, they don't have rental history, so I'm going to say no. Although we're arguing, well, they've been staying at a shelter for three years. 
isn't that rental history. They've been following the rules, et cetera. So I agree. There does need to be that. I don't know if it's a nonprofit that does homeless services that does that, because the bedrock of what we've done a lot, especially when I worked in permanent supportive housing, is that we had to keep the incentive and the enforcement separate. We had to keep parties separate in terms of how do we navigate this world. And how much harder is it in a market? You know, we mentioned a quote early in our episode from the head of the Landlord Association in LA, where it's like, look, I got 20 people coming up to rent any single unit that I got. Why do I even want or need to play this game? Even if they're going to give me an extra grand as an incentive to take a voucher holder, I don't want to deal, right? I mean, so how much harder is this sort of system in a market where landlords can basically take their pick? I mean, I think that that's how people get away with housing discrimination. It's because I'm not saying no to you. I'm saying yes to that person. And it makes it almost like nailing Jello to a wall to enforce it. No, I said yes to this really fantastic person. They scored an A plus and your person had a, you know, a D minus. So that's on you. And I would love to hear of a, a system that has figured out the enforcement piece. But if it's always going to be the market will dictate what's going to happen in housing without any sort of enforcement. I feel like we're always going to be in this because as tight as the market is and everybody knows we need more housing in California and in LA and Slow County is no different. You know, I know landlords don't live on the high horse and they do have tight budgets themselves and they have been impacted by COVID themselves. Like I recognize all that, but it is a market that's tilted towards them. So there's no incentive for them outside of enforcement to change. To wrap this up, I want to ask the same question that Liam asked me. You've been rolling out this new voucher program. What kind of takeaways do you think local and even federal officials have to maybe improve the traditional voucher system? I think that this should be used as an imperfect example of where we need to go. There are still problems with the EHV vouchers. There are still problems with the most flexible vouchers out there sometimes. I think that the more flexible that we can get with the rules around vouchers, the more that HUD can align this flexibility and this, I'll say, housing first mentality in terms of getting people on vouchers, the better, because there are PHAs who do have rules around sobriety, rules around treatment, rules around these things that are still somewhat allowable. You know, things that really shouldn't matter in the sense of, do you have a service provider backing you? Are they going to work with you for X amount of years? There should be an allocation that exempts people from some of these things if they're working with a service provider. If I lose my income and I'm on a voucher, well, 20% of $0 is $0. There's sometimes this hang-up where you have to have this income without a recognition that, well, the voucher is kind of income. And what about incentives? I think incentives should be allowable still, and I think they should roll that in. But I do think that every PHA or every locality should probably figure out what works for their landlords rather than a universal every landlord across the country gets an incentive. And then I think flexibility, service component, incentives if need be. But the fourth one that I didn't mention before and that really does need to happen is an enforcement against discrimination. Even if it's a requirement that somebody with a Section 8 or whatever type of voucher applies for your unit, you're required to respond to that at the very least. To just acknowledge receipt of it and say, this is why we didn't rent the unit to you. And just starting there gives us enough of a conversation with landlords to start kind of chipping away at some of the poor narratives, I will say, or the, the total BS around how people who experience homelessness behave in housing, I think it might be a good first step, is what I'm saying, to get to a better enforcement system. 
Well, thank you, Jack. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Jack. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast scene. This is important so that new people can listen to Give Me Shelter and hear our comedic stylings. Our editor, as always, Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you for all your great work. My name is Liam, and I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening.